Good evening to you all. I was preparing one talk and a totally different talk uh, became called for. So this is a case where the Sangha brings forth the Dhamma. So tonight I decided to teach on the topic of forgiveness, which is a very interesting and complex topic for examination and an important one. I don't know how you spent your Saturday afternoons when you were a kid, but I'll tell you what was a frequent occurrence of my Saturday afternoons when I was a child. My mother would take us to the local Catholic church and we would individually do this ritual called confession. (laughs) I'm sure there are other Catholic people or people who were raised Catholic here as well. Who I don't think they call it confession anymore. I think they call it the sacrament of reconciliation. Which does have a little bit less ominous tone to it. <laughs> but as, as part of this ritual, you, you would go into this uh, little compartment, uh, this... Uh, you were on one side uh, of, the, of the confessional and the priest was on the other side of the confessional and there was like a grill between the two of you so it was opaque so they, they couldn't see who you were which did make it a little bit easier <clears throat> and then you would, you would kneel and uh, you would say bless me father for I have sinned it has been one week since my last confession. And then you would uh, proceed to tell, you know, what you had done in the course of that period that uh, I want to say was not kosher, but that's like (laughs) mixing metaphors, isn't it? that were transgressions against either like the Ten Commandments or certain uh, significantly important church rules. So, so, you know, before you went in there, you had to do this thing called uh, an examination of conscience, which was you would actually turn, you know, inward and look at your, mindfully examine your behavior uh, since the last confession and and, and see what, if anything, was there that um, wasn't skillful. And that's what you would tell the priest about. So, you know, mine uh, tended to be along the line of I fought with my siblings and, you know, I uh, disobeyed my mother and I... Uh, I remember one time I, I took quarters from my fa- top of my father's dresser so I could go ride horses. That was like a big one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Uh, I lied, you know, I did this. So, so this is a very interesting thing, this process of examination of conscience and uh, coming to some clarity about, okay, where you messed up a little bit. And then after you acknowledged this, and uh, you know, the idea was that you, you felt some uh, remorse for this and you didn't want to repeat it, then the priest would give you uh, what they called, give you your, your penance, which meant you know, what you had to do in order to kind of like work your way back into uh, good graces with God. So th- is, this would usually be... <clears throat> Uh, prayers, you know, three Our Fathers and two Hail Marys or, you know, along this line. So then you'd go out and you'd say your prayers 
And it was a really interesting uh, experience because there was a kind of feeling at the end of this undertaking that somehow something had been lifted, something had been had been cleansed, and a kind of lightness of heart and a sense of there being a fresh start. You know, some of my little Protestant friends would say, oh, you Catholics, you can just do anything you want, and then you can go to confession and tell the priest, and everything's all okay. Now, see, a more sophisticated version of my childhood person would say, oh, yeah, well, you try to sit down and think about everything that you screwed up in the last week and then tell somebody that, and you tell me how easy it is. But in a certain kind of way, it was a real mindfulness exercise, right? And an exercise in taking, taking responsibility and looking at where improvement would be possible. You might think that's kind of a weighty thing to require of a, of a child. However, I was above what, what is called the age of reason, age seven. (laughs) So this is an interesting thing because in many uh, religious systems there is some means or some mechanism for human beings to come to terms with things that they may have done which haven't been Uh, really in accord with their conscience that haven't really been skillful that may have been harmful to themselves or others and you can see the emotional intelligence of this because imagine what it would be like if it were the case that there was no way to be discontinuous with past errors or harm where error would just kind of multiply error upon error, um, one harm leading to its repetition or to its multiplication, just kind of going on inexorably with nothing interrupting it, nothing confronting it, nothing addressing it directly, no way to clean it up, no way to stop it. You know, once the damage from harm was done, it would kind of resonate out into infinity until it kind of expired, uh, you know, due to its natural half-life. So you can see why many religious systems have some way to address directly cleaning up our mess. Cleaning up our mess or cleaning up or working directly with the residue of the mess of somebody else that hit us, or both. So when we're talking about forgiveness, the way I frame it is that it's a process of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. So forgiveness is the process of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. And it involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship to the story to the people involved, and to current arisings which are part of the experience of harm. So this word forgiveness, you know, it's good to kind of give it a specific definition because when, when that word gets thrown out there, there are a lot of associations that are present with it, and many of them are kind of contradictory or inconsistent. So when I was thinking about how I've heard this word forgiveness used, some of the associations that came up for me were, okay, acceptance, letting go, 
regret, remorse, guilt, shame, resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, judgment, condemnation, freedom, peace, acceptance, renewal, reconciliation, duty, obligation, putting on a false face, denial, minimizing, making nice, liberation, detachment, release. So this is, this is interesting, isn't it? Because you can tell just by looking at my list of associations that some of them clearly, upon hearing, don't really seem to do the job. <laughs> Making nice, putting on a false face, um, you know, denial. It can't really be that, can it? Somehow, this thing that we call forgiveness has to grapple with, has to come to terms with, has to come into direct confrontation to the truth of the situation as a totality. So when Sharon was talking recently in uh, one of her talks, I think it was last night, she was talking about intention being the first thing. Uh, And then she was talking about clear comprehension being the next uh, dimension. And then action. And then result as being a a description of how things uh, unfold in a karmic way. So in thinking about forgiveness, there's a, those dimensions are all present as well. There's the intention to forgive. Then there's clear comprehension about the totality of the circumstances, which should inform our action and which will be a heavy contributor to the result. So I'll talk a a little bit more about that later. But to speak a little bit more about the reasons why forgiveness is important, let's just kind of walk ourselves through step by step with some of this. So the reasons to practice forgiveness. There is suffering in life, and sometimes we cause it. Sometimes we have suffering inflicted upon us, and sometimes both things are true. Sometimes we're directly responsible for our own or others' suffering. Sometimes suffering just happens in the operation of life. It's just the the friction of samsara, the operation of the three characteristics, the three marks. And it's an interesting thing in um, how this lands on us, this truth of suffering lands on us. Because our systems, I sometimes speak of the system, I mean the whole body, heart, mind, body system, the totality, the, you know, the full uh, sentient and responsive intelligence. Our systems are geared to notice suffering in the interest of self-preservation and to try to avoid it. So it's an interesting thing sometimes what we do with suffering The system basically undertakes the task of responding to suffering suffering and responding to injury by never letting ourselves forget it, by keeping it alive in a certain kind of way. Even though the actual event, the happening that caused the suffering, has long, long since passed away. So we know, for instance, that uh, 
difficult memories are stored in a, a different way from non-traumatic memories. So, for instance, traumatic memories are stored with a lot of bells and whistles and flashing red lights in the nervous system that tell our our heart and mind to, you know, watch out, watch out, even take care, you know, it could happen again. And the the whole re-arising of the memories and the suffering in relationship to it are easily stimulated by events that resemble, uh, in, in any way, something that was present there when the thing happened. So the system is saying, like, don't forget, don't forget, be on guard, be on guard, you better watch out, it could happen again. Ooh, that looks like it. All happening uh, almost automatically. But keeping our past suffering alive to try to prevent future suffering is suffering in and of itself, is it not? So how can we break the hold of suffering, our attachment to it? How can we open the mind to the possibility of freedom, of living in the present with wisdom, with the past taking its place as the past, being known in the present as the past? And the answer to this is the practice of forgiveness. So you can see the wisdom of this because, you know, unskillful actions, whether they're ours or others or both ours and others, can create a kind of psycho-emotional, physical cul-de-sac in which we're locked into an unwholesome relationship with the the present suffering caused by these events. You know, there can be a kind of way in which there's an unskillful fusion of ourselves and our perception and our view and our emotions and thoughts to the very source of this suffering, whether it's a person or an event or an action. So, you know, there really needs to be a way to, to break free from this round and round it goes suffering, which sometimes seems to be so strong that it, it almost seems like it defies the, the laws of impermanence. I mean, you know, I've met people who are well into old age who are still struggling and haven't figured out a way to uh, let go of particular suffering that happened to them 70 years ago. So it can be around for a really long time. So, you know, without this capacity to move forward in some way to unbind ourselves, we can kind of be stuck to some of our most painful experiences and closed around them. So the the Buddha talks in the Dhammapada about someone whose mind is is being like this, is kind of caught in this cycle and and what it's like for him. So this is in a section that's sometimes translated as choices. And the Buddha says... uh, he talks about somebody who is, is reflecting on certain suffering events in his life. And he says, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. He's talking about a mind that's repeatedly going over. Yeah, this guy did me bad. You know, he did this to me, he did this, he hurt me, he harmed me. The mind going over that territory again and again and again. And the the repetition of those kinds of thoughts without mindfulness being there, without skill in dealing with the arising of those thoughts leads to an actual increase in hatred in the person's heart and mind. So forgiveness is the way out. It's the door 
to begin to move away from being stuck, adhered to this kind of suffering. The way to begin again with things, to thaw what's been frozen, and to begin to let things move again, to release and open choices and options and possibilities. Other than being chained to this cycle of reactivity to a memory of a past experience. So a really big point to make here is that forgiveness is a process. It's not an act of will. It's not like you can say, I forgive you and think that everything related to this situation is just going to somehow evaporate and there's going to be no continued resonance. There's, you know, it's over and done with. You know, the priest may have had God on his side to, you know, help uh, you know, as a backup there, uh, but even so, you know, things still had a tendency to repeat. <laughs> Only did the quarters once, though. <laughs> but so forgiveness is a process. It's not an act of will, although without the intention to forgive, you can't begin. So that's the first step. Sharon was talking about intention being the first thing. And let's talk about what the intention actually relates to. So the intention to forgive is part of a decision, which is a choice coming from wisdom. So the second step that Sharon talked about was clear comprehension, which is closely related to wisdom. Clear comprehension is an aspect of mindfulness or a field of mindfulness or um, the practice of mindfulness that sees the big picture of things and it sees the pertinent details and factors operating in that big picture. Wisdom. So this decision is to no longer attach to the painful present results of the unskillful actions of ourselves or others. So in forming this intention, we recognize and begin to act on the understanding that It's in our interest to let go. To no longer insist on ignoring a truth or telling ourselves the story in a way that gives us so much suffering. So there's a kind of like, ah, this isn't working. Okay, this is like just going around and around. This is is suffering now. Can I find another relationship to this particular experience of harm and what would that be let me form the intention to move move out of being stuck adhering to this particular episode and its follow on consequences so there's an important piece here which is timing is really important in working with forgiveness. This is part of clear comprehension. You know, we have to be ready for the undertaking, which means there needs to be enough stability and there needs to be enough sense of internal strength and and safety to undertake this challenging practice. You know, sometimes it's really premature to consider forgiveness. You know, the, the wound is too fresh or it's an ongoing uh, kind of thing. You know, in a certain kind of way, you're still bleeding, either li- literally or figuratively. Yeah, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. You know? No, too soon. First, you need to take care of yourself. First, there needs to be a restoration of a sense of safety 
of feeling like you do have some tools. So you undertake the, undertake the process from a feeling of strength, not from a feeling of, uh, this is really dangerous, but I want to do it because I don't want to feel this. That's not the way to, to go into it. Sometimes we need to tend to ourselves first and restore our own well-being and safety. So often you can begin the process of forgiveness in a really gradual way. Gradual. Doing it gradually is one way to encourage the system to begin to get on board. So instead of like trying to force your com- or compress yourself and just, you know, I forgiveness, I'm going to make this big like act of forgiveness. When you're not ready, how about actually using uh, the wisdom associated with clear comprehension? <clears throat> you talk to yourself more like this. <clears throat> I will entertain <clears throat> the possibility that I might at some point consider maybe <laughs> forgiving. All right? So that's a step, and sometimes that's a really big step, right? To, to not just have the mind like completely slam shut at any, you know, tiniest consideration that at some point this might be an appropriate or possible or useful or skillful thing to do. You don't want to force it to make that big, big of a jump. You want to say, okay, crack it open a little, not ready. Crack it open a little. Not ready. Crack it open. Ah. That ready. Right? So you work with the degree of readiness there. That, that's part of helping, uh, helping your body-mind system know that you're going to take care of safety. Right? By not forcing or compressing yourself into situations that are too much or which feel too dangerous or too exposed. So timing is part of it. So the other thing is acknowledging the error wisely. Wisely. So forgiveness actually does not mean denial. You know, some people in Recovery programs say, you know, denial is not a river in Egypt. You know, it's kind of like a in joke, but forgiveness is not denial. So it doesn't mean that we minimize the damage that's been done or blur accountability. Quite to the contrary. So it's a very interesting thing because when you really start looking at what went wrong, what, where things went off track, very often you will find that it started with or is deeply associated with a breach or many breaches of sila. You know what I mean by sila? Okay, sila is uh, usually translated as moral conduct. So at the beginning of the retreat, we did the ritual of coming into retreat, and we took the refuges, and then we did this thing called uh, taking the precepts that Nikki led, where together we took the five lay precepts, which have to do with not taking life, uh, refraining um, from taking what is not freely given, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from harsh, false, malicious and destructive speech and refraining from use of intoxicants which cause heedlessness. So if you look at many of the circumstances in which either uh, we have caused harm or I have caused harm or another has caused harm, there's almost always Sela stuff there. 
you know. So, you know, that's why Sila is sometimes referred to, you know, as the guardian of virtue or the, you know, the guardian of safety. Because when those basic principles are observed, it creates boundaries about the field of possible or acceptable uh, behavior. So in acknowledging the harm done, that's a, a place of examination. So, you know, where did that actually go off the road? Something unskillful happened, actions of body, speech, or mind. Sometimes it's not actual sila breaches. It just could be sometimes something more like expectations that weren't met or responsibilities that uh, weren't held uh, seriously or that kind of thing where it's, you couldn't say it's actually immoral, but in a certain kind of way it was insensitive, inconsiderate, uh, non-responsive, etc. So it's important to be clear about responsibility. You know, we can acknowledge what was done out of ignorance, uh, if we've done it, or what has been uh, done by somebody else out of ignorance. So it's important not to let the harm go unexamined. And, you know, there's a, a lot to be gained by looking at how unskillful actions arose in the first place what the causes and conditions were there that led to the wrong action. So this is an example of bringing the power of reflection in order to understand what were the causes and conditions present that led this to happen. So an example of this is, you know, if if you think back at some of the episodes where you may have caused a lot of harm or received harm from others. Um, a common element for many of these episodes is the use of intoxicants. Right? Drugs, alcohol, you know, sexual addiction, gambling addiction, that kind of thing. It's good to know it's good to know that that's part of it when that kind of stuff is going on and it's uh, not being worked with with wisdom. You know, the outflow of that kind of thing can really be quite a tsunami of destruction. The Buddha had a son named Ruhala and there, there's a story in the suttas where the, the Buddhist son... When I hear this story, I can't, I, the, bat, the way I read into the backstory, or perhaps I've read this someplace or heard this someplace, I kind of get the idea that Ruhala was having a few issues as a young man in the Buddhist sangha. That would be kind of tough duty, don't you think, in some way to be the Buddhist son? I mean, no pressure or anything. <laughs> but, you know, he was doing, a, doing some things that weren't, you know, quite up to snuff in terms of observing the, the rules around the Sangha or something. And he, he went to the Buddha and the Buddha had a conversation with him and he said, you know, this is the Buddha saying this to his son, uh, in, in order to purify word and action, we need to recognize and admit mistakes. And he, he actually encouraged Ruhala to acknowledge the unwholesome action to his teacher. And the Buddha called this opening it, opening it, the unwholesome action to his teacher. And then to undertake restraint for the future. So this sounds like not completely different from going to confession. <laughs> Except the God element is removed from the equation. But So let's talk about the issue of remorse and remedy. Remorse. So in the case of our own unskillful 
actions. We can identify what we did which was unskillful. And by opening to the harm that flowed from that, we can really let ourselves feel why we don't want to do it again. And this is kind of an an important piece, right? When you start to realize the effect on your, your own heart and on your own mind, is such that, ooh, let, me, let that be a non-repeater. You know, this is, this is unpleasant. This is, this is difficult to make this acknowledgement. We can feel why we don't want to do something like that again. And this is the feel, what's called uh, the feeling of remorse, and then the resolve with a, a sincere heart not to repeat this error. So it doesn't mean we necessarily succeed, right? Because, you know, we're imperfect, conditioned human beings. A perfectionistic model is just a form of uh, diluted imposition of expectation upon ourselves. But, you know, if, 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 we've, if we've made a, a big one that we recognize, yeah, it can be really skillful <laughs> to go, ooh, bad one, I don't want to do that again. You know, and if it's appropriate, we could actually take particular specific steps to keep us from future uh, actions that cause harm to ourselves or others. So, you know, this might involve something like getting psychological... Uh, counseling to support investigation into uh, dynamics and motivations that contribute to this conditioned pattern in ourself that uh, we might respond in this kind of way. Or maybe it includes something like uh, getting into recovery to get help and support letting go of substances if we know that's uh, an issue that's uh, bound up in doing um, this kind of thing. So if it's appropriate, and this is a question of clear comprehension, wisdom about the big picture and the various factors in it, if it's appropriate, it might be uh, good to make amends or restitution or to allow someone else to do that with us. I can remember I I once had a a person I knew like and worked with like 20 years previous call me up out of the blue and basically say I'm in I'm in recovery and I just want to apologize for how I was when we worked together and kind of like went down the list of what she felt she had done that was unskillful. And, you know, when I first heard, you know, person X is on the line, you know, my initial reaction was, ooh, I wonder what this is, you know. Ooh, it's like not, really not, uh, you know, somebody I'm liking, liking to hear from. But, you know, in being willing to accept the, the call and... Um, being willing to respond uh, in an open-hearted way when I, I heard the sincerity and the, the truthfulness and the uh, integrity of uh, taking responsibility, I had a total change of heart in relationship to this person. And I felt a lot of respect. And I felt like uh, I let go of a big uh, load of stuff in relationship to this person. So it can be skillful. You know, if this happens, then uh, we're able to release the tie to others that has in it the nature of hatred and fear and resentment, uh, guilt or shame. So then that relationship, um, whether it continues or not, just has a different tone to it. Now, in some cases, this again, clear comprehension, wisdom of the big picture, it wouldn't make any sense at all to attempt to contact someone or to let them contact you. 
it would be unwise, right? That you, you may know they really don't want to hear from you, and there may be some people that you just really, it really would not be good or wise to become uh, uh, involved with in any way again. That they need to, you know, be held at a distance in terms of personal contact and personal connection. There are those circumstances. And having that wisdom and making that discernment doesn't mean that you can't make any progress in terms of the internal work involved in that kind of relationship. Because you still, whether you ever see them, talk to them, hear their voice again, hear anything about them, if, if it's a big event, if it has been a big event and you're still suffering in relationship to it, you have an inner relationship to that person. You can work there. To there with what it brings up, what arises there at the thought or the memory. So let's talk about the wisdom of discernment and how that fits with what you might call guilt and shame. Two very pleasant states, I'm sure, I'm sure you agree. <laughs> So there's a way in which we can take responsibility for our actions which isn't skillful. And that's to take our moral failings or our uh, imperfections or the things that, that we did that were ignorant or deluded as proof positive that we're a bad human being and we're worthless. Okay, if we, if we took that as the criteria for des- deciding whether human beings were bad and worthless, i.e. whether or not they had ever done an action which had caused harm to another human being or dr- distress to another or had injured another, or then we would have to decide we're all really rotten. Because we've all done it, Right? We've all done these kinds of things. You know, we may know about the impact of some of the things that we've done that was unskillful. Or maybe, you know, there's just been a trail of, you know, uh, little bits of debris (laughs) around us and behind us as we've moved through life. But we've all done these kinds of things. You know, sometimes you can't help it. So it's a mistake and unwise to think of um, evidence collecting against ourselves as part of this process. Because it's really not skillful. And it's kind of self-centered in a certain kind of way because then instead of becoming clear about what behaviors we need to change or what new things we need to learn or it kind of turns into uh, collapse into a, like reverse narcissism, like, you know, I'm so bad. Instead of taking responsibility for changing and growing in certain ways, which would be beneficial to ourselves and others. So shame and guilt are suffering states and, and to relate to them in unwholesome ways really undercuts the actual work that needs to be done to liberate the mind and actually avoid future suffering. So getting caught in guilt and shame is disempowering because it causes the mind to lose confidence in its basic potential to evolve towards greater wisdom. So that's a trap. You don't want to fall into that one. So, a next thing. So you want to be open to the truth of, about whatever present continuing suffering there may be. So even after working with forgiveness, 
there may still arise the experience of anger or sadness or fear or remorse or guilt or all of those. So then the task is to learn to work with those states, with metta and equanimity and wisdom, without closing around these difficult states or identifying with them. So, you know, just one image that I'd like to use for this. So, you know, sometimes um, when they launch a satellite into orbit, you know, it'll be up there for X number of years and then uh, you know, its half-life uh, starts to manifest into it becoming particleized, and every once in a while it'll kind of come through the atmosphere, little bits and pieces of it, um, you know, falling to earth, still, you know, being uh, experienced. It, working with these kinds of situations can be like that, you know? Bits and dribs and drabs, sometimes, you know, a bunch of stuff moving through the mind related to this thing that you've, you've been uh, uh, working towards forgiveness in relationship to. So then can the mind be patient? Can it keep faith? Okay, this is this. Yes, it's true. This feeling is similar to something I felt before. But it goes through quicker. The mind is more skilled in working with it. I know this state comes to an end. This is just part of the the tail end or the trailings of this hurtful thing that happened previously in my life. So we can commit ourselves to working with these difficult states in a way that supports our liberation. And, you know, and it may involve getting additional support and training. You know, if, if you knew, know that, you know, there's still a lot of resonance related to this, for instance, in your body and mind and your nervous system, you might want to explore learning something like somatic experiencing, where you develop some uh, skill in working directly with the nervous system when the flashing red lights and alarms go off that I talked about earlier, um, which can, uh, that are tied into uh, difficult memories. You know, there are, mean, there are means and methods to ease discomfort at that angle of things, too. They're there. We know a lot more about working with the body-mind system as a whole now. And... Uh, ways to help turn down that tendency uh, to go to alarm in certain circumstances. So let's talk a little bit about (coughs) reconciliation. I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, contact and, and making amends. And reconciliation is somewhat related, but it's an attempt to repair and reestablish relationship between or among parties involved in a situation of harming. And trying to get it mended on a relational level. So there are some pretty uh, well-known examples of this that that you may have heard of. You know, South Africa, after uh, the end of apartheid, after a number of years, undertook this uh, thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, <coughs> where the idea, was, the, the, the basic premise was if, if people who had committed human rights uh, abuses, this was mostly, uh, you know, the Afrikaner group, the police group, would, would come forward to this community uh, tribunal and really uh, acknowledge and specifically expose and tell what they did under what circumstance to who and in some cases where the bodies were and things like that. Then they, they would not have to suffer 
the criminal penalties for doing this. And the idea was, you know, we want to see what we can do to bring the society together. You know, people taking responsibility for what they're they're doing, but you know, not being punitive uh, in a way that will cause a round of you know further social fragmentation. We want to see what we can do to bring this together. So that's you know one example, and and sometimes these processes work, and sometimes they don't work, and sometimes they partially work. You know, I think this has been uh, tried also in, uh, I want to say, Uganda or Rwanda, um, again with mixed results. Because what do you what do you do in cultures where you know there has been like some internal genocide happening, and you still have two groups of people living side by side, and you know the victims with the perpetrators. You can't just like leave it like that. You got to try something, right? So um, people are trying something in a number of different parts of the world. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So there's no rule about reconciliation or trying to reconcile with someone, obviously. Again, this is uh, clear comprehension and wisdom dependent on the totality of the circumstances. You know, you could attempt an in-person reconciliation or not. You may communicate with the person or people involved or not. You know, have continued connection with them or not. You know, you really need to consider the bigger picture. But wisdom definitely needs to be involved with it. You know, at, at an earlier part of my um, life, I did a, a lot of work with uh, uh, working in uh, shelters uh, for uh, um, survivors of family violence. And it was really interesting to see, you know, like the strong social pressure that would be put on people to like, uh, sometimes to, you know, like get over it and forgive and reconcile and go back. But, you know, really, generally speaking, was not a wise decision because none of the underlying dynamics were different. You know, there were cycles of aggression and you know, that kind of uh, uh, violent behavior and then sometimes, you know, expressions of remorse and requests for forgiveness and then maybe somebody come in, came in from the side with, you know, some uh, religious talk about how you should forgive and, you know, you should get back together and, you know, Jesus f- says, you know, you should forgive um, 70 times 7, that's how many times you should forgive and, you know, all this stuff, and um, very often it was very unwise. Because what was happening in the relationship is uh, once you transgress certain boundaries with people, unless something really different is interjected, it becomes easier and easier to break those kinds of boundaries especially if there are relatively few consequences for doing the deed, right? So, So this is, again, part of the part of the wisdom piece of this kind of thing. You gotta look at the big picture. Because even if the person never, for instance, hit you again, would that still feel like a gratifying, respectful, satisfying, trusting uh, field of relationship once that's been part of it. So, you know, there's not absolutes with these things, but it's kind of a good illustration of, of why you can't take a perfectionistic or fixed view 
and say, forgive, 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 for, forgive, if you're holding this word forgiveness at meaning, let's just forget about it. It's just like it never happened. I'm suggesting the opposite, which is, what did happen? Why did it happen? What is wise to do? How can self-care be present at the, when you're considering these things? Right? Wisdom, the big picture. So, you know, learning really requires uh, reviewing experience sometimes. Learning from it. So there's a, a, a way in which forgive, forgiveness is also tied into great historical tragedies. You know, it's often said about the Holocaust, for instance, you know, never forget. Never forget. We don't want to ever forget that this kind of thing happened because it means that this is within the range of things that can happen. We always want to be aware that things like this can happen. So we can notice when it's starting to tip that way and we can do something different. You know, what are the, the lessons? What, what do we need to remember? If you remember uh, when they had the big tsunami in uh, Japan a number of years ago, where these giant waves came in and they you know, washed away whole villages. <coughs> when the story was reported, one of the things that, that they eventually said was, you know, people who had lived in those same areas hundreds of years ago, had taken the trouble to create these stone markers way up on the side of the adjacent hills that basically said something like, you you need to know that it can come all the way up here. Remember this. This is how high it gets. That was a lot of trouble (laughs) for those people to do that. They thought it was important information. So it can be important sometimes to tell these kinds of stories too, these generational or these historical stories, which also require forgiveness because they're still affecting us. You know, I think... A primary example of this in the United States, one of our, you know, our great national wound is the wound of racism, and in particular, the relationship between the African American population and uh, the larger population of the country, the mostly white population of the country. It's because there's never really been any acknowledgement. Not really. I mean, for most of, most of those of us who are white, our historical knowledge and understanding is about this deep. So as part of the community conversation about this issue, what, what happens is, you know, when issues are brought forward or issues are raised, we tend to either go into denial you know, or like pushback, I'm not responsible, or we tend to go into guilt and shame. And nobody wants to eat a guilt and shame sandwich, you know, if they're a healthy human being. That's not what you're going looking for. So, you know, it all just, like, stops. So I was um, reading in the New York Times, uh, maybe about a week ago, ten days ago, there was a story about how Georgetown... University. Do people know Georgetown University? It's in Washington, D.C. It's a good school. It's a Catholic school. Um, They have a graduate school of public affairs there that actually uh, produces a lot of diplomats. Well, part of the history of the school was uh, at a certain point early on, the Jesuit priests who ran the school actually uh, owned some slaves who worked in Maryland 
And when the school ran into financial trouble, the way they bailed out the school was to sell the slaves off down south, which were circumstances that were harsher than the probably deeply unpleasant circumstances that were there in Maryland. So they like took like dozens of people, men, women, children, sold them off down south. And the money was used to save the school, which still exists. So there was a story about this in the New York Times. And, you know, this had come to light in the school. And so, you know, people at the school were, you know, we have to do something about this. We need to respond to this in in some sort of way. There needs to be some uh, acknowledgement of this, you know, some coming to grips with this part of our history. We need to try to make this right in some sort of way. And so one of the things that was floated was, you know, well, maybe there should be scholarships for the descendants of these people. So the, the New York Times um, has a lot of letters which are very uh, interesting to read. New York Times letters are usually quite good. Um, but I was really amazed and not in a positive kind of way at how the response, I would say in 95% of the letters was, we're not responsible. I don't think we should do anything. Or I don't think, you know, anybody who's alive today should be held responsible for something that happened that long ago. And it was just like this, um, like this really strong pushback, not even necessarily from people <coughs> who were part of the school. But, here, but here's the, the question. So the New York Times also, as part of its reportage, researched and was able to track down a number of the descendants of these families <clears throat> who are mostly in Louisiana and actually you know, went to them and said, you know, we found this out about you know, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather and grandmother, and, you know, what do you think? Now, can you imagine receiving that information? You know, many, many of these people's families were still practicing Catholics. And it was, it was interesting to see what the response was because Yeah, because the response was for many of them was, I didn't know that, but it really affects me. Okay, so if you have a living group of people who are really affected by this information and who have been affected by this situation for generations, because it doesn't just go away whether they know it or not, whether it's spoken or not, it's in the genome. It's in the, it's in the, the environment, the emotional environment, the unspoken, uh, the unspoken things are present. The big things that can never be spoken because they're too painful, they're still there in the dynamic. So is this really a situation where I shouldn't have to Is it an I shouldn't have to situation? Or is it a situation where what would be useful to actually bring reconciliation here? You know, what what would be reaching out to these these families in acknowledgement, in goodwill? What would that look like? Which is, to me, a lot more fitting question about what's appropriate than I shouldn't have to think about this and I don't want to have to you know, do anything about it because I wasn't alive then and none, none of us were and you know, I had a great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War. Well, I did too. Gettysburg, Trump you. But, you know, we can do better than that, right? We can do better than that. Interestingly enough, most of the families 
didn't say, yeah, you owe us, you know, give us money, yeah, you should make it, you know, all our kids should be able to go to school. It, it was much more muted and much more modulated than that. Some people say, well, that was, you know, that was a long time ago, you know. Some people say it would be good to have some scholarships. Some people said it would be good to have some a monument with the names of people in a public place at the school. So, so can we, when we're thinking about this topic of forgiveness, when we're thinking about this question of reconciliation, also hold an awareness of some of the social dimensions of this? Not that we or anybody else can go back and, and fix the past. It's not like that. But there, is there a kind of way where we can develop some skill in working with what's still going on now? without going to the, I'm not responsible, I shouldn't have to think about it, or, you know, oh, I'm so bad, I'm white, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm really good. You know? It's not helpful. Unskillful states, right? Unskillful states. Okay, well, then the only other question. I'm answering this question because somebody left it on the... Oh, they left it for me. And it's got two little hearts. (laughs) How to work with the situation if the person you've hurt without meaning to has died? How do you get resolution when you feel the full pain of your actions now? So what, what I would do with that is, well, we presume they're not suffering anymore. Right, we we presume that they are probably not tracing whatever they may be experiencing now to your inadvertent, unskillful action. So, so at this point, it's really about your own movement of heart and the re- release that uh, could be found. So I would go outside if it's if you can find uh, a clear night. I would find a star that you find particularly appealing. And then I would find uh, the words to speak as if I was speaking directly to that person and just speak it out. So, you know, they say the universe has ears. May we grow in wisdom and compassion for ourselves and others and skill. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.